In history classes growing up, I learned about a lot of things that have taken place over the course of time in America. Things like the Boston Tea Party, the Civil War, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and even the moon landing. The U.S. education system taught me many things, but it never really taught me much about the U.S. education system. I was taught a little bit about school segregation. I learned about some of those famous court cases like Plessy versus Ferguson, which in 1896 laid the foundation for segregation, establishing the now infamous separate but equal doctrine throughout all of America. Then there was Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, a landmark Supreme Court case that determined racial segregation in schools was now unconstitutional. But the story I was taught essentially ended after Brown v. Board. After that ruling, schools began to integrate. Things really started to turn around, and today, racism in our schools is gone. But there's got to be more to it than that. just have a court case that all of a sudden changes every single thing. The Brown decision was we need to desegregate schools with all deliberate speed. Uh, well, you know, what the hell does that mean? I don't know. And no one knew. And when you think about how deeply ingrained these segregative practices were throughout the South, I mean, that's not something that was going to happen overnight. It did not happen overnight. This, this narrative of we lived in segregation, Brown v. Board, desegregation, everything's great now. Well, I mean, it's, it's wholly false. I wanted to learn more about how education works in America. Are all public schools really equal today? Who has access to the best teachers, the highest quality curriculum, and the newest, most effective learning materials? What options do students have after their public education? How does history still have an impact on today? In an effort to answer all of these questions and more, let's start from the very beginning. I'm Isaac Goff Mitchell, and you are listening to The Youth Vote. This is the Education in America series. Stay with us. Now, something to clear up right off the bat. I am not a historian, so if I ever hoped to get the full story on America's schools, I needed to talk with some experts. The two voices you heard earlier belonged to Dr. Bradley Poos and Dr. Jean Ruffin. But before we talk more with them, we're going to take a look at the very beginning of education in America. Right after the American Revolution, many of the nation's founders were pushing for a public school system. That is, one that is publicly funded and supervised. Thomas Jefferson was particularly forthright about this. And he believed that it was essential to democracy. So in Jefferson's view, in order for democracy to sur survive, you had to have a robust public educational system. And the reason for this was because people needed to understand the process, the democratic process, and what it meant to be citizens of the United States. That was Dr. Ted Service. 
He's a professor of education at North Park University in Chicago. He went on to tell me about Horace Mann. Really, we could look at him as a sort of patron saint of American public education. Horace Mann really spearheaded the movement for public schools, which at the time were called common schools. The things he pushed for were the professionalization of teaching, and he sought to improve education in rural areas. It's hard for a farmer at that time to sort of understand what's the point of education. And this is not only true in the United States, it's it's true even in Europe, in the sense like if they're going to end up being farmers, why would I even send my kid to school? So there's a sort of mind shift that sort of happens, right? You know, the idea of it, it's about preserving the democracy, it's about preserving the nation, but also about coming up with ideas and developing the economy and, you know, finding later, maybe they're not going to be farmers, maybe they'll have, you know, a less stressful life and a better life for themselves later. As American education started to develop, a curriculum began to take shape. Dr. Zervis said at first, American schools were using exclusively textbooks that were borrowed from England. Which doesn't really look good, right? Because the British were our enemies. He explained that Americans wanted to create a sort of national curriculum, separate from Britain's. That's when Noah Webster entered the scene. You have definitely heard of him, even if you don't think you've heard of him. You know, the Webster Dictionary? It's that guy. He developed a uniquely American dictionary and even changed the way that some words were spelled or pronounced. Like color, British color, C-O-L-O-U-R, to our color, favorite, you know, dropping the U, uh, and even the pronunciation of words, you know, schedule, where the British will say it, and we say schedule, and, and so forth. The new curriculum focused on reading, writing, and arithmetic. But there was also a very large emphasis on religion, particularly Protestant Christianity. What happens with um, immigrant groups coming in mostly from Ireland, for example, right, who are mostly Catholic groups, and they're settling in cities like New York City, right, cities like Chicago, cities like Milwaukee, and so forth. And this becomes a problem for them. And it becomes a problem because it's not only the prayers that they're teaching in schools, right, which are not the same prayers that you know, uh, Catholic Christians are using, but, you know, Catholics are not even being seen by Christians. And there's even like what they call at the time race riots between gangs of Protestants and gangs of Catholics, and they end up killing each other in New York City. And then the textbooks themselves are sort of portraying Catholics as being, you know, drunks and, you know, having allegiance to the Pope. Eventually, the McClay Bill passed in New York City, paving the way for a secular board of education. While these religious school wars seemed to dominate various cities, of course, there was another battle taking place. Education was not available to everyone. The millions of enslaved people at that time were barred from attending any sort of public school. We'll talk about that a little bit more right after this break. In my circle of friends, I'm that politics guy. The one you grab a drink with when you're trying to understand what that bill in the Senate means, shoot a quick text to asking about what the news you just heard is all about, and called on election night hyperventilating because Michigan looked like it was going to go red. On the Millennial's Guide to this historic moment, I show you the bigger picture of today's events, with historical and political context, what it all means, and most importantly, what you can do about it, just as I would with a friend over a drink. So join me, Ty Wyckoff on the Millennial's Guide to this historic moment.
Welcome back, everybody. Let's pick up right where we left off. During the early to mid-1800s, while white America was establishing the beginnings of a robust schooling system, there were still millions of enslaved people prohibited from attending any public institutions. To provide more context on this, here is Dr. Jean Ruffin, who you heard from in the beginning of this episode. Dr. Ruffin is a professor at the University of West Georgia. She teaches graduate courses in educational leadership, specializing in educational equity and school law. When you think about education, you, you think about going to school, you know, and it's available for everybody. And some people go to private schools, some people go to charter schools, but if you want to go to school, you can go to school. That was not always the case in the United States. Education for Blacks was viewed as a, I would say, something that is not necessarily important unless it was going to help the person that owned them. And um, of course, you know, if a slave could read, then they could learn. And if you can learn, you begin to understand that there was something, you know, inherently wrong with the system and figure out ways to uh, escape. Now, that doesn't mean that Black slaves didn't find ways to educate themselves. Many of them did. There were underground schools. There were churches that were very active in that process. Those Black churches that were educating uh, the Black community, not only during this time of slavery, but thereafter, morphed into some of these original Black schools. The Black church is central to the community of the segregated community we see at the turn of the century into uh, the early, mid-century. That was Dr. Bradley Poos, the other voice you heard at the beginning of this episode. He's the associate director of the Institute for Urban Education at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So we've established that from America's inception, there was never equal education. We know that slavery denied millions of their freedom and their basic human needs. But interestingly, as Dr. Poos emphasized, it's important to pay attention to the resiliency and determination of black people in America throughout our history. This determination was present with a man named Benjamin Roberts, a black man in Boston who attempted to enroll his daughter, Sarah, in five different white schools in 1848. The only school black children in Boston were allowed to attend was the Abel Smith School, the first building in the nation created solely for the purpose of educating black children. But the Smith School was underfunded and lacked many resources. When Sarah was denied interest to the better-funded white schools, her father sued. Dr. Zervis explains more. Eventually what happens is, in Boston, they make the decision that the schools would be desegregated. And at that point, it sort of spreads in the rest of the North, right? It's, it spreads in that part of the country, but it doesn't spread in the South. The Civil War began in 1861 and ended in 1865 with the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery but school desegregation had only just begun in many parts of this country. We'll talk more about desegregation later in this episode, but right now we're going to shift focus a little bit. It was around this time in the 1870s when the Native American boarding school era began. Just a warning here, the next few minutes will include a few instances of violence and abuse. This was a gruesome period of time, 
when the United States government sent thousands of Native children to boarding schools across the country. It lasted nearly 100 years. Children were literally forced away from their homes and sent to boarding schools sometimes thousands of miles away from their families. And if parents refused to send their children, the government would withhold food rations or send them to jail. Some of them were even killed. Vance Blackfox is the Director of Public Relations at the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Vance explains more about why the boarding school era began. And this was under the guise of the federal government thinking that Native children were better off not being with their family and going to a school and taught how to be, um, basically how to be white in their culture and their identity, because it was the belief that being natives at this point was still not a good thing. And the attitude in those early years was that, you know, it was better to kill the Indian and save the man. And that was an actual quote by one of the first men who created a boarding school, General Pratt. Vance shared that his grandmother and some of his other relatives were sent to different boarding schools. And while I'm a descendant and wasn't directly a student at a boarding school, uh, I certainly have that DNA, that, that trauma, and as well as my compassion and concern for my grandmas and my aunties who went to school at boarding school and uh, hope to honor them by doing this work. The treatment of Native children in these institutions often constituted torture. They were subject to physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. So once they arrived at the school, Native children, they were immediately taken through an intake process. It wasn't very friendly. They were scrubbed with Lysol, and they were told that they were dirty, dirty Indians. Immediately, even if they didn't speak English, which most of them did not, they were, could not speak their own tribal language. And if they were, they were punished. The boys had their hair cut and Native men um, had pride in their hair and it meant something. And it, and it had a special meaning and power and had a purpose. And so to have that cut was to be shamed. And so they, that, that alone was a very harmful and hurtful process for young men to go through. In the summertime, especially for those schools that were thousands of miles away from the reservation, they would farm out the children um, to local farmers for the summer months. And they would go stay with the farmer and they would work, help work the farm. But in many cases, the children wouldn't return. And there's no documentation for where these children are. There are cemeteries in every school because children would die there. Little girls would end up pregnant by, by different different um, adults who are supposed to be responsible for them. So, I mean, the list just goes on. And in some schools, the harm and the abuse was much greater than others. I have an auntie who went to another school who had just a, a, a brilliant experience and, and was treated very well. Um, but that was usually an exception. There was usually, it was usually the opposite story being told. And even if the abuse was minimal in certain schools, the purpose right? The purpose of the schools themselves are an act of abuse, are an act of genocide, in that they are being taken to a school for the purpose of forced assimilation. It was not until the passing of the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1978 that Native American parents gained the legal right to deny their children's placement in off-reservation schools. Vance told us that while the boarding school era has ended, 
many of the traumas endured by Native children at that time have lived on. That's why the National Native American Healing Coalition is committed to supporting survivors and telling the truth about what took place for all of those years. Later in the series, we'll talk with Vance again about why we don't learn this history in school and why it is so important to start telling the full story and changing the way that we learn about Native people throughout history. So, while the boarding schools were expanding across the nation, public school segregation was growing as well. And while public school segregation led to the underfunding and antagonization of all black schools, Dr. Poos explained that black people at the time made the best of the cards they were dealt. And in some cases, they thrived. The quality of education that was happening in these segregated schools was extraordinary. The teachers, the administrators were exemplary. Many of them with PhDs, master's degrees from Ivy League schools or HBCUs. And so these communities of these segregated black communities with churches and schools as kind of the center of those communities were protected enclaves. And the, the faculty, the educators protected the students in those buildings, the community rallied around them, protected them. And so we see a great academic success in many of these schools, as well as a sense of community and care that we've lost in, in DSEG. They were underfunded and that is, I mean, across the board, they were wanting for supplies, buildings, completely underfunded in, in egregious ways but they were really centers of great academic success. Brown v. Board of Education passed in 1954, making school segregation illegal. But in reality, it opened the door for an onslaught of new tensions, riots, and hate-fueled turmoil. Here's Dr. Ruffin again. The Supreme Court, they made this big statement, but they didn't say anything about how states were supposed to implement their ruling. So Thurgood Marshall, who was a lawyer in Brown, and um, his colleagues went back to the Supreme Court um, in 1955. The court actually scheduled that for them to go back and discuss remedies. You know, what's the timeline gonna be? What's the, um, how are we gonna do this? And the Southern states were adamant <laughs> that it just wasn't going to happen. And then you had Thurgood Marshall saying, we need a definite timeline because if they don't have one, they're going to stall. And that's exactly, that's exactly what they did. The South stalled and stalled and stalled over the next few decades. I mean, there was a school district in Virginia, in Prince Edward County, Virginia. I mean, they just didn't have a school. I mean, they didn't have school for Black kids because they just were not going to follow Brown. There were instances like with the Little Rock Nine where you had governors who actively worked to prevent Brown versus Board of Education from being implemented all the way to closing schools down rather than follow what the Supreme Court said needed to happen. I didn't really learn about the Little Rock Nine in my history classes, 
Like I heard about their story a little bit, but their story is so important and it's very vital to the telling of the American school history. So I want to just take a moment here to talk about them. The Little Rock Nine were nine black high schoolers who, in 1957, enrolled in the formerly all-white Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. There was intense opposition from the white school leaders, politicians, students, and parents. Even though the Brown decision had been made three years prior, Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus ordered the State National Guard to come and prevent the students from entering the building. The nine students were met with an angry white mob of some 1,000 people screaming and spitting on them. Remember, these are children we are talking about. Eventually, though, President Eisenhower sent in over 1,000 troops to escort the Little Rock Nine to their first full day of classes on September 25th, about three weeks after the original start date. And this story goes on. The next year, the Little Rock citizens, under the direction of Governor Faubus, voted to close down all of Little Rock's high schools because they wanted to prevent integration. For the record, several of the Little Rock Nine went on to noteworthy careers, like Ernest Green, who served in the Department of Labor under President Jimmy Carter, and Minnie Jean Brown Trickey, who served at the Department of Interior in the Clinton administration, and Melba Patillo, who worked as a journalist for NBC. Dr. Ruffin explained it wasn't until a decade later when Brown v. Board actually started to integrate schools. Once we got to 1964 and the Civil Rights Act, uh, once that was passed, when I say that it gave teeth to Brown, it allowed the government to not give money to school districts that were not desegregated. So basically, if a school district did not allow integration, the federal government would withhold funds. And that really, I think, was part of the catalyst of getting these schools in line. It took time, though, for districts to, you know, really embrace this notion that they're not going to give me money. I need this federal money. So let me go ahead and get on board. I don't know that we would have seen the progress that we did see throughout the late 60s and 70s had we not had that kind of carrot and stick situation going on. These laws were monumental. There's no doubt about it. But as Dr. Poos explains, our schools are trending in the wrong direction again. I think it is more accurate to look at this history of segregation and desegregation as sort of an ebbing and flowing, not a clean trajectory of progress, but some progress and then regressing, and then some progress and then regression. There was a period, I mean, 1964 into the early 1980s, when uh, one of the scholars who I, I will defer to in this, Gary Orfield at UCLA, will talk about this, and he'll say, well, we basically, collectively, the United States deconstructed an apartheid system in the South between 1964 and the early 80s. But at that point, we accelerated then this process of resegregation. 
throughout the 80s. And of course, we're still dealing with that today. So, yeah, segregation is still prevalent in American schools. Here is Dr. Ruffin to explain a bit why that is. So what we're seeing now is, you know, the courts, I mean, the courts are viewing segregation as something in the past. That's that narrative that we're talking about. And so they're not as apt to uh, enforce these, these segregation orders. They're not as apt to find for plaintiffs who want to explain that, hey, there's still segregation going on. There's still inequality going on. Because I think we've come to a place where people really think it's over and it's not. And so now we're seeing this trend back toward resegregation and inequality in our schools. And of course, that's, you know, affected by white flight from urban centers and a number of other things, you know, residential patterns and whatnot. But it's, I mean, schools are still segregated. After talking with these historians, it's clear that the story of America's schools is one full of violence and racism, but it's also one of community strength and endurance. As Dr. Ruffin and Dr. Poos just mentioned, segregation in schools never really went away. You're probably wondering though, what does this mean? What does modern segregation actually look like? And how are we still allowing this? Next week, we'll get into some of these modern inequities and we'll take a look at how school funding is connected to it all. You won't want to miss it. Well, everybody, that was our show. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Youth Vote one The Youth Vote is hosted by me, Isaac Goff-Mitchell, produced by Jamie Hobbs, and the social media is managed by Bridget Junker. The music for this series is produced by Jim Young.